Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast officially double vaccinated. My name is Corey Hazelhurst, and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. So we're recording this in person in the bunker. We can probably lick each other's faces, and it probably wouldn't transmit COVID, though Steve doesn't seem terribly keen on the idea. I'm slightly run down, I have to be honest, listeners, because uh, of the various side effects, although the jab is safe and effective, and you should get it when you can, kids. Steve's quite run down, I think mainly through life, from what he's saying. But pretty much, yeah. So it's just been a long week at work. So probably isn't going to be a, a as coherent an episode as usual, listeners. You'll be pleased to know. But you'll be able to scientifically work out if that's true, because we're going to do a regular slot. This is our Movers and Shakers picks. regular listeners will know and hello to both of you at the start of each year steve and i pick the men and women we think are going to make waves in british politics in 2021 and at the end of the year we decide who has won through our arbitrary debate tested metric uh this is our midpoint checking in we'll start with our leaders pick steve you went for boris johnson being that he is the Prime Minister. I went for Nicola Sturgeon, given that she leads Scotland and the SNP. We spent a lot of time in January arguing about whether government bandwidth would be taken up with Brexit this year, specifically about whether the government would spend a lot of the year trying to add bits to the very thin deal that Johnston negotiated just a month or so, well, just weeks earlier. As it turns out, there's been a lot of bandwidth negotiating Brexit, but it was about the government essentially nego- trying to renegotiate the bits of the deal they'd already negotiated. Yeah, which was not quite what either of us thought was was going to happen there. Um, in true Johnsonian fashion, one Boris Johnson has managed to surpass our expectations in a way that we couldn't even have imagined by being more depressing than, than we ever thought possible. Now, I, I still have to take credit for saying that Johnson must still be talking about Brexit a lot and the government activity taken up, but... Yeah, the fact it's on the protocol is... Oh, wait, it's not baffling, actually, because it's perfectly obvious why it's happening. Yeah, it's uh, it would be a, a hilarious and a farce if it weren't also, a tr- uh, if it weren't also tragic. Uh, Speaking of hilarious and tragic farces, how has Boris Johnson performed as Prime Minister this year? <laughs> <laughs> do, do I need to go into a... A meaningful analysis here, or does my uh, laughter give you everything you need to know? Um, not well. Not well at all. Uh, I think it's safe to say that in many ways, uh, Boris Johnson and his government have they've botched the two biggest challenges facing them, which was Brexit and the COVID <laughs> pandemic. Both of these things, they have managed to either create self-inflicted wounds or in fact, they've created self-inflicted wounds in both instances, both in Brexit and the pandemic. Uh, and essentially, everything they've done has just kind of 
turned to ash in their in their hands for the most part. The only good part of the uh, COVID response has been the vaccine rollout, which is the thing the government has not really been involved with at all. Uh, with at all, and uh, everything else has been really crap. See t- track and uh, uh, sorry, test and trace, track and trace, whatever we call, whatever it's called these days, and Dido Harding and some of us are old enough to remember when test and trace was a moonshot, but. Um... Johnson's not done well. It's not well at all. <laughs> no, and and yet has moved and shook mainly by embarking on this rather interesting social experiment where we get rid of all restrictions whatsoever and leave it to personal responsibility. Yeah, where literally I think we're the only country in the world really doing this. Yeah. yeah. Well, libertarianism doesn't really work with public health. I mean, the clue's in the name, isn't it? Public health is meant to be everyone works together to try and keep everyone safe. And there are some things that we don't allow personal responsibility for when we have rules and regulations like, say, wearing seatbelts or speed limits or health and safety regulations. But yes, we, we've talked a lot and we'll doubtless talk again about the strength pathology the strength this is where the, the strange pathology of is Boris Johnson. We had a patron out about him actually about the Tomic Tague article in the Atlantic. If you want to listen to that, listeners, Nicholas Sturgeon, we have also talked about his length as well, um, especially after the Scottish elections. Not been massive call for Scottish independence. Not really, I'd say, made waves nationally yet. So it is Johnson essentially who's made more waves simply by virtue of making lots of terrible decisions. Yeah, he, the waves he's making are basically the equivalent of him just tripping up and belly flopping into the sea. Uh, but uh, waves they are. So. Or, or trying to open an umbrella. Oh, God. The fact that the, the fact is... A prime minister can't open an umbrella properly. But again, speaking as someone who has difficulties with umbrellas, it's not that I'm... Yeah, it, It's more, if a Labour politician had done that at a memorial for police officers who'd been killed they would have been completely and utterly slaughtered, given that the last two Labour leaders we've had before Keir Starmer, uh, one of whom got castigated on the front pages for not bowing enough at the cenotaph, and the one before that famously tried to eat a bacon sandwich. Oh, well. Got to love the British media, haven't you? So on that happy note, let's go on to cabinet ministers then. So I suppose it's my turn. So I picked Liz Truss for this one. You picked Pretty Patel, or as she was known in January, the Pritster, because she'd just been sort of... There was a, a wall put around the Pritster, wasn't there, after all the various bullying allegations. God, was that in January? That was in January. Time has become meaningless. Life in many ways, Steve. <laughs> so... This one's a bit of a score drawer, isn't it? And these were pretty mm. decent, solid picks. Both obviously have leadership ambitions, both in senior cabinet roles. Both have tried to do things. I mean, Pretty Patel was at a raid and became a meme. That was nice. Oh, um, Liz Truss negotiated a trade deal with Australia, which I think nets an extra 0.0000000. Three one seven percent onto British GDP, whilst also simultaneously screwing over British farmers. Yes. So on that, well, actually, yes, the fact that she's managed to destroy British farming actually means that Liz Truss is the shoe in for this. Um, we were also in January talking about the possibility of a cabinet reshuffle. <laughs> I feel like we've been talking about that for a while. Very much like Godot is <laughs> just—it's not... coming soon. It's coming. 
as soon as Boris Johnson has picked up the courage to actually sack any ministers, we'll have a reshuffle. No, I, I think I think you'll find he's uh, find he uh, uh, he found out about Matt Hancock on the Friday and then sacked him on the Saturday. That was a very reasonable time frame, just long enough for Tory backbenchers and Tory members to make their opinions known. <laughs> If, if you weren't feeling so broken by humanity, I would try and grind out a kind of win for Liz Truss and say why maybe it makes... It, I, I feel like her attempt at a global Britain's trading shtick maybe is making a little bit more waves than whatever the Conservatives are doing on crime this week, trying to make them... That. Yeah, um, I, I, genuinely, I think there probably is a... a, 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 a I wouldn't say strong, but a stronger case, um, maybe for trust compared to Patel. Um, just because, like, I'll be honest, I don't know if anything Pretty Patel has actually done has actually had an impact on anything. The other than like maybe like the um, the refugee the refugee law changes, which sort of basically mm. criminalised the RNLI. Yeah, I suppose banning the right to protest and what have you. Yeah, it's actually passed now. I can never remember. Oh, yeah. But yeah, but I suppose, yeah, so crackdowns on, on kind of protests, I suppose, and there's lots of illiberal laws, which I suppose will have a massive impact. Um, being no confidence by the Police Federation. Also. I've not come across that one. Oh, that was this week. Oh, yeah, no, that, that one's new on there. Ah, yes, so that happened. Yeah, no, I still think it's probably actually goes to trust, though, simply mm. because whilst the deals that she's, she's struck have not been particularly great... She's at least done things which are actually having a real impact on on, on on her role and there is a success there. And, you know, winners and losers from the actions and everything, whilst Patel, for the most part, it's just been rhetoric and, as you say, like, you know, going on raids and things for, for the media publicity rather than actually doing anything meaningful. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, like, like um, I think, the, is, it, is it this week, which is Crime Week for the government? Or, or something yeah, in terms of... I don't of... think they're quite branding it as that. No. But, but yeah, so, so yeah, the government's doing a lot, a bit of campaigning this week. Labour's also launching it, its sort of safer communities crime campaign as well, because I think they've seen that's where the government's vulnerable. Yeah. But the uh, but yeah, so the government's been talking an awful lot about this sort of stuff, and yet they've not actually announced anything new. Like, the policies they've done, they've announced are things that were either already in place or, like, just rehashings of um, previous announcements. So... That does not suggest that Pretty Patel has actually been hard at work behind the scenes developing new policies or anything like that. So, no, no, I think mainly been behind the scenes bullying people. Actually, you might think that, but I could not possibly comment. No, we'll have to wait for the report, I suppose. Mm. Okay, Mo- moving swiftly on from that, then shadow cabinet ministers. Uh, I picked Ed Miliband. You picked Lisa Nandy. Um, again, it's it's been really hard. I think in this kind of Six, first six months, we're sort of still in the vaccine politics. Polling suggests that maybe politics is slightly returning to normal. Vaccine bounce feels like it's wearing off more than Boris Johnson. That's another thing, another way he's moving and shaking British politics by not getting isolated. Um, and I think it's kind of been hard for either to cut through, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Nandy in particular, as the uh, foreign spokesperson, is... Um got a difficult job in terms of making cut through anyway because foreign uh, the foreign policy brief is probably the area of politics where people 
just don't care the most if, if you get what i mean it's there's a, an, an outside of major events happening um you tend to stay quite low in the under the radar and then just pop up when something big happens um so in terms of cut through nandy has a has a tougher job than Miliband would have done, I think. Um, but equally, Miliband, as a result of the um, as a result of the pandemic, hasn't really been able to cut through in any meaningful way either. So, yeah, I, I think it's it's a draw at half time for them simply because uh, you know pandemic called off play. Yeah, and Miliband wrote a good book though. Go big. It's worth reading. If you can, it's about big ideas that will change the world. And there's some really interesting stuff in it. I listened to it in an audiobook. It's good. Moving on from that then, so we've got we've got Backbencher. You picked Tehenna Davison uh, from Northern Research Group. I picked Steve Baker, or to give him his full title, Brexit Hardman Steve Baker, um, who I think, it, well, as you say, Davison is a bit of a of a wild card pick from you. And again, might a pick based off of the notion that they'd want to actually like have a reshuffle, Boris. Oh crap! No. Well, there we go. It's That's been so long. And so I've slipped. So again, for those who've started uh, listening to us since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, and hello to George, by the way. Because Steve said Boris without Boris Johnson, he has to make a prediction, and given. The Boris was about the reshuffle. I only think it's fair to say that your prediction, Steve, is going to be: when is Boris Johnson actually going to have a reshuffle? God, um, I don't think he will ever. No, <laughs> you think that cabinet ministers will just be caught in various scandals and they'll just yes. appoint from the back benches? One hundred percent. Yeah, I, I actually do think that because to have a, for him to reshuffle, it would involve him being able to call upon one wing of the party that backs him. He can't do that because he doesn't have actually much meaningful back uh, backbench support. As you've said before, it's very transactional. It was, we, we want you to win an election and there, we think you can, therefore we'll back you. Um, I think one of the reasons that he's kind of like like a like a you know a rabbit in a uh, sorry, like a deer in a headlights situation uh, in terms of governance is because he doesn't have a core group really that uh can can guide him in any meaningful way and uh, as a result of that he's just gone he's just kind of brought up people who are loyal quote unquote uh to to him or at the very least are happy to like you know just say whatever and just go along with it for the for the for the trappings of power um as a result and we've seen this um, a number of times already. Like um, he didn't get rid of Patel when he should have. Um, he didn't get rid of Cummings originally when he should have. Cummings ended up leaving later, and he had to be pushed very heavily by his own backbenchers to get rid of Hancock. Um, as a result, um, I'm not convinced there will be a reshuffle um, because that would involve him actually having to make enemies and kind of move people around. And I don't think he'll want to do that because I don't think he's capable of actually making those sorts of choices. Yeah, that's an interesting argument. I I can see a situation where that happens. Um, I think part of Johnson's problem, and Steve Richards is quite good at this, is that he, he just acts like a, a columnist. He doesn't really think through the consequences of actions. It's um, 
in a way, it, it, he's still sort of dashing something off the telegraph and then you file it and then the problem's gone. You don't have to worry about what it says in in, in years to come. Um, and I, I suppose what you say about the, the backbenchers, I think, actually leads quite well into the Steve Baker stuff. So um, I've been transformed, um, to paraphrase Vince Cable, from Mr. Bean to Stalin with my, some of my... From going to saying that the Lib Dems would lose Chesham and Amersham to saying that at the start of the year that Steve Baker would be an influential pick because the political debate would be about when lockdown restrictions are eased and that the opinions of people like Steve Baker would be important in that. And that's what we've seen, that essentially the reason we're in this weird social experiment is because, according to an unnamed Tory source, that is uh, Boris Johnson didn't want to rely, rely on con on Labour votes to get things through. He'd lost the majority of con of Conservative backbenchers. Yeah, which again kind of goes back to that notion of um, he doesn't have actually backbench support in a meaningful way uh, from his own party. Party, So no. he's got no one to call upon for a reshuffle. No, he, they've picked him because he's a winner. Air quotes around winner. I suppose he did. He did literally win, though. Yeah, but... Got majority of 80. I mean, that's a bit of a win. It's not a Blair majority, obviously, but you know, it it it, it, it is a win, but but like a single victory does not necessarily make you a winner. What does it make you? What I mean by that is, yeah, you won the election, but if what happens and like this might happen, this might not. Um, if what happens is throughout all of this, we end up with him not reshuffling, keeping on bad. Uh, bad cabinet minute, cabinet ministers and, and uh, cabinet secretaries and all kinds of things like that, which then just further erodes trust in the Conservative Party um, in, in a way that's similar to what happened to Major in the 90s with um, the, the sleaze scandals and everything. And if, you, if that happens and it ultimately costs the um, Conservatives the ability to govern, is he a winner? Well, I suppose here we're, uh, it's the difference between he won elections, and I suppose it's Conservative MPs will tolerate Boris Johnson as long as he seems like he's winning. That's why Chesham and Amersham is such a, a and badly to a lesser extent, but yeah. mostly Chesham, because it is the first sort of sign that the Tories might be in trouble. Like, I think you, um, what that highlights that you've just said is, and Cummings has said this too, to be fair, is that no one put Boris Johnson Prime Minister because of his administrative skill. Um Annoyingly, with our with our backbencher picks, uh, well, uh, you, and you mentioned just to give you your sort of Nostradamus day in the sun, um, you thought of picking the Sag, which would be a quite good pick. Yeah, but I didn't go for it because I decided to try and be a clever clogs, and uh, so far that has not paid off. And it, like, um, yeah, boring competence will out over. I mean, I just like to. Again, air quotes around competence. Uh, there. Oh, that's about my predictions, damn it. How dare you? <laughs> well, we can move on swiftly from that. Leader of a party, uh, someone from the party, someone who is neither from Labour or the Conservatives. You went for Nicola Sturgeon. I went for Ed Davey. Yeah. Um, I think it's got to be Davey. Because of the smashing the blue wall with a yellow hammer. Which I think oh, is a Beatles song. I'd forgotten that about that as well. That's the defining image. 
Yeah, but hello, Mark. By the way, yeah, essentially, yes. Um, the victory in Chesham and Amersham um, by the Lib Dems overturning a very significant Conservative majority mm. and returning a significant Lib Dem majority as well um, is a massive blow to the Conservatives uh, and uh, has has or will at the very least. Um, inf- uh, going to influence the, uh, the the national political scene moving forward in a way that Nicola Sturgeon hasn't done yet. But I, I, and you can see that with a lot of the the conservatives getting a little bit iffy on planning, yeah, reform, uh, and a, again with levelling up. And there's been a few things since we we did a podcast on levelling up and said that no one really knows what it means and everyone will take it to mean whatever they want it to mean, which has been. Again, entirely borne out with what we've seen in the last, of the last few weeks. Yeah, basically all they've done is taken a load of pre-existing commitments to expenditure and labelled that as lolling up, as far as I can tell. It's just storing up just a whole array of issues for them. Yeah, it, it's going to be put very much going to be in a, a position where, on a local level, like um, Labour, M, Labour like p- potential MPs and blue wall seats, Sorry, in red wall seats. Um, maybe even some of the blue wall ones as well. Um, are, mauve wall. Yeah, the mauve wall. Um, are going to uh, turn around and say, um, did, did they actually deliver? Is the area better than it was four years ago? Or, or whenever the, you know, whatever the length of time is, mm. was between like the election that's just been and, and the next one. Uh, I, I, I'm, I, please, can we not <laughs> speculate about the next general uh, But uh, yeah, and it, it, and if it continues like this, it's going to actually be quite quite difficult for conservative MPs in red wall seats to actually say, yeah, no, actually, this paid off. Like we, you've actually gotten a load of additional investment in things um, because really seats get lots of money in lots of different ways, and they have done under every government. Um, but they're not necessarily very noticeable uh, and to, to your average uh, voter. And as such, it needs to be pretty significant um, for people to actually be able to pay attention to it in some form. And I don't think that's 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 that's, that's happened and is going to happen. No, I was amused by uh, the, the unnamed focus group participant who was asked about levelling up and said, oh, you mean the pot, fixing the potholes, which I think is um, e- emblematic of... <laughs> lots of issues they're going to have um, and, and again go back to Cheshire and Amersham that was one of the major issues that was that they, they had in that seat all politics is local Steve okay columnist and commentator well I mean this is the segment we've all, all been waiting for we've got Victoria Newton was your pick editor of the Sun mainly because of its online content although they did make a lot of waves with their Manhattan cock. <laughs> I mean, no, that is technically accurate. Um. With a um, with a, with a Matt Hancock scoop, with terribly old fashions. Talk about politics going back to how it used to be. I picked Andrew Neil just so we could keep an eye on GB News, and it's a good job we're keeping an eye on it because no one else is. No one. Hey. Um, I find it really strange just how badly GB News has done, actually. It is utterly amusing to me how they've managed to bugger this up so badly. Separate out like the politics angles from it and the fact that they're, it's, it's a more right-wing station or, or, or whatever and just focus on the pure basics and that it went into it as they're calling themselves GB News and they weren't actually doing the news. They were all just commentary. 
and commentators kind of like talking about things, which is fine, but it's not news. Um, and on top of that, it looked like it looked and looks like crap because it's actually really expensive to run a, a, a news studio and news programming, and it lo- really, really looks like they've just not thought it through properly, or rather. I think what's because there's been a lot of comings and goings um, from GB News with a lot of their um, behind the scenes um, staff actually leaving. Um, and the ones that are leaving are the ones that used to work for the BBC, that used to work for um, Sky News and things like that, who were individuals who basically had gone, oh, this is interesting. Like, this is an opportunity to progress my career. Let's, let's try something different. I've been here for so long. There's only so many kind of like jobs in the industry. This is a new a new chance to do something uh, and, you know, get a promotion and things like that. And they did that. And now they've all left because they're basically being told, no, we can't do the stuff that actually we want, we said we were going to do for you in the first place. Ooh, that's one of them just coming in there. <laughs> As you say, it, Andrew Neal's a serious broadcaster has edited the Sunday Times back in the day, is a serious journalist. But the issue they seem to have is that they're going down the route of a lot of the more independent media outlets. This is true on both left and right. We're not going to name them, are we, Aaron Pastani? Because you can imagine the kind of outlets they are. And the problem, but there's so many examples online of people who become more and more and more extreme to have to pander to an audience and to try and get clicks. We saw a horrific example of it this week with someone tweeting essentially that lifeboats shouldn't save lives, essentially for attention. And in fact, someone else then saying that maybe we should make porn for children, presumably also to get attention. It reminds me very much of Stuart Lee when he made his stand-up comeback after leaving Lee and Herring, basically saying what he needed to do to make a living was to find a thousand people who'd pay 30 quid to see him do stand-up. So we just had to find a very small, loyal audience and cultivate it, which I'm guessing, you know, if you're making stand-up, kind of makes sense. It's the kind of thing that if we were more self-centred and gave much more of us stuff, maybe we could do. We could kind of be a proper centrist dad, like kind of Andrew Adonis on acid. 100%, and, you know, it would be a lot more profitable for us to do that. But some of us have credibility. I don't know what your excuse is. I'm lazy. (laughs) Yeah, there's that too. It feels like what GB News has done, as you say, is go entirely down the bashing the culture war route. I mean, that the how you can possibly say that you set up a station to give voices to to people marginalised by the mainstream media and try and be less London centric, and then within weeks hand a show to Nigel Wallace Farage, and and, and the problem then they have is. You, you, you've got debates on there about you know, Gutu Hari, who again is one of the more serious broadcasters on there, took a knee, wasn't allowed in anymore. To, even like Tom Harwood comes out being one of the more sensible people because he says, actually, I'm anti-lockdown, so therefore I'm pro-vaccine. And it's just, what are you doing? Yeah, it really feels like, and I'm, I'm looking at this purely with my, like my marketing like professional hat on, is that Despite the fact everyone's kind of gone, oh, well, no, they, we, we know what kind of audience they're going after. Actually, they, they don't know what audience they're going after because, in effect, they would, the, there's, there's two distinct right-wing kind of uh, groups within the populace of the UK and then probably more broadly across the world as well, I think, at least in the Western world, um, where you have your centre-right, conservatives with a small C, 
your David Camerons, your to a degree, your Michael Goves, people like that, um, which are you know right wing, um, but are at least contained a have a, a notion of a shared objective reality with with a lot of other people. Um, I'm not sure if I share Michael Gove's objective reality. Just going to throw that out there. <laughs> I thought you meant sort of posh but socially liberal. I realised that actually Gove was adopted, so maybe that doesn't fit. No. Uh, although he is posh now. Um, mm. But then on, on, uh, on the opposite to that, you've got your um, culture warriors um, and your, for, for lack of a better types, your your GOP QAnons. The those two distinct kind of like groups within the right wing are actually not that heavily linked and they don't actually want to see the same things out of a out of a media program or media programming which means because like if you were doing um you know group one there guta hari taking a knee isn't an issue because it's an actual debate and it's a thing and he, he takes the knee and it, and it becomes a talking point you know and, and to actually get the debate going you know which is the sensible the sensible thing um, if you are actually a, a channel devoted to debates and, 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 and giving opinions and things like that. But Group 2 sees that as an outrage. And that's the problem you've got, is that you've got them... Tr- they've been trying to cater to Group 1 and Group 2, but they can't do that because what's happened is the very act of living in reality with Group 1, as we've seen with uh, Guta Hari, um, he gets fired because he takes the knee because it breaches journalistic standards. That was the excuse. Um, but that's and, just because it was only the only people who might actually watch it. Yeah, as, as demonstrated by the fact that after Hari did that, there was a boycott of GB News um, by the people who were actually what, the only people who were watching it. And some of their programs got literally zero viewers. Like there were some, there were some programs in, uh, in, in, in when this was going on where we got more viewers, but we got more listeners, and they got viewers, and that's an astoundingly terrible thing for a, for a ma- what's meant to be a major publication. I think a lot of it is that there's just there's less appetite in the UK for a divisive sort of right wing cultural Fox News style. Yeah, and there was because there was some in America. Yeah, because there was some stuff from uh, More in Common which came out this week, I think it was, mm. uh, which is basically a report which basically says, yeah, most people aren't buying into the culture war types of things. Most people's views are nuanced and reasonable and we aren't the US and yet they're trying to import US issues in a way that just doesn't resonate in the country. Yeah. I mean Britain is growing slightly more socially liberal as a country. Um and that's pretty true of most attitude surveys that you can see over the last couple of decades. There, so I, if you, again, just, just to sum up, I suppose, what and it, you've got the Sun, which is a mass media outlet which caters to millions of people, uh, at least hundreds of thousands of people. You have GB News, which sort of set out to try and compete with that, and has ended up essentially trying to do the more new media thing of your finally devoted audience of. 25,000 and you try and get them to pay 10 quid yeah. well maybe that's some lessons for us we should just um, let's find something we can be outraged about that is a bit less niche than Fort Willis and electoral systems and constitutional reform I really like the idea of constitutional reform though I don't really want to give that up yeah, no. need to return to our roots mm. speaking of back to basics mm. worked out well for John Major speaking of wild cards you picked Dan Rosenfield, Boris Johnson's chief of staff. Yes, we'd forgotten two listeners. And 
I picked Jonathan Van Tam, everyone's favourite metaphor maker. I mean, it's Van Tam, but basically, like Rosenfield's been nowhere, and number ten's a mess. Yeah, it's it's one of those things, isn't it, where you'd hope that it was a reasonable call to see if maybe someone could professionalise the outfit. Instead, what's happened is they spent millions of pounds on a press room that now isn't going to be used because they realised that people might ask Boris Johnson questions there. It's a shameful thing for journalists to do, to be fair, to flagrantly try and keep the Prime Minister accountable at such a critical time in our history. Oh, very dare they. Um, so now the PM spokesperson is helping stuff out for COP26, isn't she? Um suggesting that people should rinse before they wash dishes and join the Green Party. I have nothing to say on that. <laughs> uh, but yes, I think, and Jonathan Van Tam, I think, was out this week, wasn't he? Again, sort of doing as bet as well as he can with whatever the government's public health message at the moment. I mean, they don't have one. <laughs> well, no, they do. I forgot what it is. <laughs> effectively, as good as not having one. Actually, no. What is it, it is, still, is... Is it still hands-face space? No, I don't know. Well, all, 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 like, all no, like, no, the ventilation is part of it, isn't it? I think. All I know is I that. Yeah. All I know is that it's uh, now our fault if everything goes wrong, and it's got nothing to do with the government. That's basically what the public health messaging is boiled down to. Is it's like, no, we're going to let you make the decision yourself. So if it all goes wrong, it's clearly your own fault. Well, that feels like a suitably nihilistic end in which to end this episode. Um, it is our trademark we are going to record some silly season episodes uh, and then probably take a short August break while I go to the north of England pray that I don't get pinged and read a lot of books so if you've got any ideas that you want us to talk about for our silly season do let us know otherwise um, only thing to say is that if you want to support us so that I can buy more books to read in the north of England, you can support us on Patreon, can't you, Steve? You can indeed, yeah. You can head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne where you can fling us a few quid every month, which will go to help us keep this uh, this little podcast running. Um, everything goes towards our running costs. Uh, yeah, and you'll gain access to unique episodes. I think uh, earlier on in the episode, uh, Corey uh, mentioned uh, that we put up something relatively recently where we did a bit of a deep dive into a profile um, that uh, Tom McTaig had done on Boris Johnson for The Atlantic. That's the sort of thing you can get when you, when you head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne and throw us, I think, it, I think the opening uh, level is like two quid a month or something like that. And uh, if you do that, you will, uh, say, get lots of new and interesting episodes. Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. James Crown designed our logo. You can find him on Twitter at James Crown. And Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Bookie Good Times. I'm at Paperback Writer. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting, everyone. Mm-hmm.